Hello, everyone. Can you hear me? In the back? I can't hear you say yes or no. Uh, I am Karen, and I'm a grateful member of Alamon too. <laughs> Especially now when I'm down on terra firma. God. <laughs> that elevator, I had to stand and face the wall, you know, I couldn't even look out. And, uh, so if you have a little vertigo, get Dan to take you to lunch. <laughs> well, thank you so much for inviting us here. We love to come to Canada. We've been in Toronto before. And uh, last time we were here, they took us just across the street and showed us the railroad station. I love that. You know, that's fine with me. <sighs> anyway, we're so glad to be here. And you're a wonderful group. I, I was in the meeting this morning when Johnny spoke. I, I sat in the back. Some of the stuff he tells you, you know, I just kind of would like to not be known around here, but that's okay. Well, I hope there are some new people in Al-Anon out there. And, uh, and of course, in Al-Anon, we're new longer than you are in AA. Did you know that? Down in Laguna Beach, when they ask, we, uh, we go to a Wednesday night open meeting, speaker meeting, AA meeting. And there they ask for new people with under 30 days of sobriety to stand and identify themselves. And after that, they don't ask them anymore. But uh, in Alamon, it takes us longer. I don't know. Maybe we're not as sincere. I know for one thing, we don't usually don't have the law looking for it. I don't know. And, you know. What do I know? But uh, if you're new and you have come in here in order to to sober up somebody in your family or someone you know or love, uh, that's one of the best motivations of all for coming to Alamon, I think. It won't work, but you're here and you'll find some answers for yourself. And by the way, I want to say this. I don't always say it, but... I, I heard some talk this weekend, and, you know, you're not an al just because you're married to an alcoholic or an AA member, or have a kid, or, you know. An al is someone who attends al meetings and practices the 12 steps of, of al which are the same as AA's 12 steps. And I don't say that as a, as a put-down or a criticism. I say it because I don't want you to to deny yourself this marvelous program because it's as powerful for the non-alcoholic as it is for the AA. Nobody can argue with the fact that you guys and girls quit drinking. I think that's, that's still uh, stunning to me to, to see John the way he was carrying on and to see him stop drinking. It was amazing. And I'm always so impressed with that. So we don't have that, but there can be a turnaround in our lives, too. And that's what I wanted to say. 
Okay, one of the first things they told me when I came to Alamo was that it wasn't my fault. Oh, I love that. I love that. Johnny regularly told me, no wonder he had the drink, you know, being agony. But then the next thing they told me was that I was sick. Sicker maybe than the alcoholic. That did not sit well. I mean, really. But then again, you know, it's all right if you're sick when you come in here. It's all right if you're full of fear and hostility and anger and all those negative things. I'd really worry about you if you came in serene and happy. You know, that would be strange. I mean, you'd almost have to be on something. (laughs) And that also happens. (laughs) <laughs> but anyway so it says I'm from Laguna Beach California and uh, that's not really where I'm from I was born long long ago far far away <laughs> in Lapland, Sweden 50 miles north of the Arctic Circle can you imagine and uh, my father was building a railroad up there. And uh, there was drinking and partying in our house. On the weekends, uh, those railroad men, they either gathered at our house or somebody's house, and they was drinking and laughing and singing. And ever since I was real small, I had a great need to shake up the people around me. So if anyone laughed too loud or sang too loud, I'd tell them about it that big and uh, I got sent to my room a lot but my father was a lot of fun I can remember some of that Uh, he had a big Harley Davidson motorcycle with pontoons on for the snow you know and a sidecar and I had one older sister and he'd take us two girls in that motorcycle once in a while and that was fun but when he drank, I, I didn't like him. And uh, when I was 10 years old, we moved to Stockholm, which is the capital of Sweden. And uh, my father's drinking increased down there. And I really had trouble because I was in a school and I had some friends. And uh, sometimes I wanted to bring them home with me and I could never be sure that my father wouldn't show up drunk. And I can remember my mother saying to me, please, daddy's coming home now. Don't say anything. Go to your room or go to a friend's house. And daddy would come in and he was a huge fellow. And uh, he was really just ready to go to bed. He he, he was a peaceful drunk. He, he was very big and very strong and known for it. And I don't know, I think something had happened that he decided never to mix into anything. But I would go toe-to-toe with that man and tell him how I felt about his drinking. And I could never keep my mouth shut. And uh, mother had to hustle me out of the house many times. I had to quit school when I was 15 because of his drinking. I had gained entrance to a better school you had to take tests and get in uh, 
And I firmly believe this all the way into Alamo. And, uh, of course, I find out that wasn't how it was. I had discovered movies. I was of an age where I could go to a little more fun movies. And uh, I loved American movies, most of all. I didn't understand the language, but I uh, could read subtitles. And I had got some grandiose ideas in there, and I wanted to dress like <laughs> Lois. You know who I'm talking about. Gloria De Haven and June Allison dress. And, uh, and I came home one day from school and I said, I've got a job and I've quit school and I'm not going back. That was how that really was. Nobody wanted me to quit school. And least of all my father, I think. And, uh, well, of course I couldn't make any kind of money. So I went back to school, but I got a little night job. I lied about my age, and I sold chocolates in a movie theater. And that was really the first peace and quiet my family had had, because I was out of the picture. My mother and my sister never uh, took Daddy to task for his drinking, you see. They just left him alone. The summer I was 17, as Johnny told you several times, I was <laughs> working in an office in Stockholm, and one of their southern branch people came up. And uh, he was pretty. Oh, my. He was <laughs> very dark, dark eyes, and beautifully dressed, beautiful manners. That was when manners were in, you know. <laughs> you couldn't take a cigarette without him being there with his super lighter. Anyway, and all the women in, in the office, we, we whispered about this fellow and wondered about him. And we used to straighten our scenes when he came around. <laughs> and, uh, but he liked me, and we became friends. And we'd go to lunch together and have breaks together. And, and the summer went by, and the end of September... He asked me for a date. It was his birthday. And he said, what do you do on Saturday night? And I said, I go dancing at the Winter Palace. Doesn't that sound good? And it was. I was looking at this there. And uh, it was like the Palladium in, in Hollywood. And uh, they had a big band, and they played Glenn Miller and Artie Shaw and all that good stuff. And he said, I'll come and dance with you. And so he did. And uh, that was the beginning. And uh, he spoke with a southern accent. We had a south in Sweden. Sweden is no bigger than California, but we have regions of uh, dialect. And Johnny came from a town very close to Denmark. And uh, so I had a little trouble understanding what he said sometimes. In fact, a couple of times I said yes when I should have said no. <laughs> So, moving right along, <laughs> in, uh, in six months we were engaged, and a year after that we were married. And you see, the most marvelous part about this man was that he didn't drink. And I had promised myself, and I had said it to my dad, you bet, when I find someone, it'd be someone who didn't drink. I 
after we'd been married six months, Johnny came to me and said, how would you like to go to America? And uh, everything was going my way, you know. Hadn't I found this beautiful man, and now I was going to learn to speak English. And when Johnny said we were going to Los Angeles, I knew it. We were going to be in Van Johnson's backyard, you see. So, as John said, in 1948 we came to California, and uh, he said, I've I got to take this up with you, John. It really bugs me. He, he says, we came from Sweden, and she was pregnant. You know, we came to Los Angeles on the 7th of July, and I probably got pregnant on the 30th of June. I mean, we didn't find out for a couple of months. You know, remember that piano bench? <laughs> anyway. made this game, you know. <laughs> I mean, he makes it sound like a couple of rubes, you know, being pregnant and go to America and all that. Anyway, <laughs> so we did have that little girl, and when she was three years old, we should go back to Sweden and show her off, you know, and our families really wanted us back again. But by that time, we knew... We, had, we wanted to stay in America. And, uh, and, and alcoholism was not, or, or alcohol was not a part of our life. In those first three years, we, well, for one thing, we probably couldn't afford it. But we were so busy becoming Americans, you know, and, and getting used to California. Anyway, in those days, we, we flew to New York, and then we went by ship across to Sweden. And uh, it was on that ship... John's relatives in New York said, now when you go across, instead of taking Brahmani, why don't you drink scotch, they said. And uh, when they said that, I said, oh, what a great idea. And I can't even answer you for that. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, knowing what I did about heavy drinking. But that's what I said. And I tell you, we had a wonderful time on the ship. And we came, and I love that scotch. I still love scotch. But, you know, how it's come to be now. But, anyway, we came to Sweden and people were throwing parties for us over there. And we had a ball. And by the time we came back to California, Johnny had a job with an expense account. So now we really set out to have fun. And people took us out and we took people out and entertained them. And, and we went to parties and we had parties and... We had so much fun that in no time at all we had four children. Yeah. And by this time we had moved down to Corona Lamar, a little town very close to where we live now. And uh, I'd be on the beach during the week, and then on the weekends we'd party. And uh, have a babysitter come in for the kids, and off we go. And that's how we live now. But after a few years of that, I began to have second thoughts about this whole thing. And uh, I had a talk with John 
the first of many. And I told him that this drinking life was not good. It's not good for us and not for the children. And we were going to give it up. And Johnny just asked me to run along. He wasn't interested in that plan at all. So we still went out and we still had parties, but now I couldn't enjoy myself anymore. Now I had to watch what he was doing. And I took my job seriously. So you can imagine how that went. The arguments and the fights. We moved to Anaheim at that time. And uh, this was in 1958, all the big building stuff was going on in Southern California. And we moved into a tract of homes. We were all young people coming in there with our little kids. And and uh, these people were church people and uh, civic-minded and did serious things. And they were not really heavy drinkers, but we tried to blend in, especially John. He He's very gregarious and loves to talk to people and tell stories and all that. I remember on Friday night, they started having potlucks, you know, and uh, you'd meet at someone's house and bring a dish of food and a bottle. And uh, so we did that too. And uh, Christian wouldn't let go of his bottle. He put it under his chair. And uh, everybody put everything in the kitchen, you know, but and then he'd misbehave, you know, at the party, and I'd had to straighten him out on the way home. And then Saturday morning, he'd come out and say, hey, didn't we have a good time? I wouldn't talk to him. I, I just turned my head. And so he'd get his gear together, and everybody was putting in lawns and flowers and everything. Everything was bare, you know, and... Uh, so he'd get his tools and his stuff and his bottle and his cups. And he'd set up shop out on the front lawn, you know, and he had a big gate post. And uh, then he'd wait people over to, to come over and have a drink. See, he had his bar out there. And uh, some of the guys would sort of look around to see where their wives were and they'd come over, but they couldn't stay. They had work to do, too. The last people who gave up on him were the, were the watchtower people. They, uh, uh, they, they came around, you know, in a new tract of homes, and, uh, and they'd be out there, and John would have his arm around the guy's shoulder, you know, and they didn't drink with him, but they discussed the end of the world. I know that. And, uh, it got so, I dreaded the weekends, you know. It was all right when he went off to work, but uh, the weekends were a pain to me because I had grown up in little towns up there in Sweden and where my, I, I hated to see my father. He didn't drive a car. I hardly anybody drove a car up there. And I'd see him walking around along weaving, you know, and he had a big black overcoat that flapped around him and a big black hat. And I just hated to be known that he was my father. And I was always embarrassed. I, I, and now I was embarrassed in Anaheim, you know, by this guy. And uh, I was always trying to improve myself. I, uh, at the time, I was reading Sinclair Lewis and uh, learning to read English, of course. And uh, 
there was a story in there about a family who had a drunk in their family and they hid him in the attic you know they locked him up in the attic put food outside you know they could and I thought that's what I'd like to do with John I'd like to hide him I wanted to hide him of course I let him off to go to work but I mean <laughs> well I got sick very soon I, I think what happened to me I had counted so much on being out of that kind of life by marrying John and uh, here's what's happening to me again I wasn't going to have to stand by the window and wait like my mother did and be stood up on appointments and all those things uh, my life was going to be different but it wasn't it was the same thing and uh, once in a while I'd pick on one of my neighbors and I'd tell her partially you know and uh, and then I'd go home and then I'd start feeling disloyal and then I'd start thinking now she knows about us and then I'd resent her and I wouldn't see her again and I cut myself off at the one after the other of my neighbors and uh, I got so I I couldn't even go to the market I tell you the only way I could get any work done was if I was angry if I was angry I could work and clear up the house and take care of things but if I really let myself feel and realize how sad our life had become I couldn't move and uh, I think even John could see that I was in trouble I'd go to the market to and uh, and I put stuff in my basket and if anyone spoke to me I'd leave everything and walk back home again I I could not face people and uh, so we had one more of our talks we regularly like John said had talks and started over again but this time John said you know it isn't worth it to me if the drinking is going to do this to you and he said I'm going to give it up because Johnny had been in on a few episodes with my dad uh, before we left for America. But Johnny said, no, I'm going to give it up. He said, I'll tell you what, in three weeks' time, we'll have, I'll have these jobs finished, and we'll take a little trip, we'll take the kids, and we'll go to Palm Springs, and we'll have a vacation. And, uh, you know, those three weeks were wonderful. The children began to relax around him, and and he and I were friends again and we were going to be alright on the morning when we should leave for Palm Springs when I got up Johnny was drunk he'd started to drink during the night and it just it just took me I, I just floored me and I thought he shouldn't go he shouldn't drive but then we went anyhow and it was a disaster he drove much too fast and we came to Palm Springs and he used to take us out to lunch and fell in the restaurant and it was bad. I tried to take my life that weekend. You see, I had figured it out. There had been a love before me and I was sure that Johnny was sad that he had married that other girl and that's why he had to drink. I never talked to him about this. I just figured it out. And uh, also, I knew I wasn't giving everything to the children. 
I, I barely had time for them because I had to worry about where he was and who he was with and all that. So, and I had, when we were home in Sweden, I had said some really hurtful things to my father. And I thought everybody would be better off without me. Well, I got very sick and eventually got back to Anaheim. And it was soon after that our minister came to call on us. And I sure wasn't going to tell him how we lived. But he was so kind and thoughtful that I began to tell him about my father's drinking. And uh, then pretty soon I was telling him about John's drinking. And he suggested I come to him once a week for an hour and talk. He said that would surely help. And if you can get John to come, he can have another hour and another day. And I thought, oh, he won't do that. He's so selfish. But I told John the next day about what the minister had said, and Johnny said, of course I'll go. How kind of him. And that surprised me. Well, now we were both getting help. We had each an hour there. And, uh, and it did help. We didn't fight so much anymore. It took some of the pressure off. But it was over a year later when I came to the minister one morning that he said to me, yes, he said, I do think John is an alcoholic. And uh, now I had thought of John as an alcoholic for several years already. It was no secret to me that it was the drinking that had changed him. But the minister said to me, if he is an alcoholic, he has three ways to go. He will either go crazy from it or he will die from it. Or he can get help. Well, I never even heard the last part. You know, it didn't register. And I can still remember how I felt that morning when I walked home from his study. I was finally, it was clear to me, I was, wasn't going to be able to fix John. Nothing I said or did helped. But I even understood that the minister couldn't do it. I had thought it would, you see. But here, it was all this time later and Johnny was still drinking. But you know, I think I even understood that Johnny couldn't fix it. Because in that year, I had seen him try to stop drinking several times, and he go back to it. And I think something happened to me that morning. I didn't understand it then, but I understand it now, because I have seen it happen to people who come into Alamon with somebody still out there. And uh, I, I, it was just sort of removed from me, and that was not my doing. I just sort of gave up on the whole thing. And uh, I was called back to Sweden at that time. My father was ill, and tickets were sent for me and my little boy. He was the youngest. And uh, I left and left the girls with John, and the minister said, we'll find a woman to look after them. And I went back to Sweden. But while I was there, I started to think, I had to learn to go to work, because I knew I couldn't live with the drinking much longer. I had such violent feelings of anger and about the unfairness of it and, you know, and uh, I knew I would have to learn to go to work again because I would probably be alone. And I came back to Los Angeles. It was a gray, overcast day at LAX and Johnny was there in a gray slack and a gray shirt and a gray face and he was shaking and I tried back into it again. But I did get a little half-day job. This is going to pick up a little. This is, you know. And uh, 
and I worked for a, it was a half day, and I worked for an insurance agent uh, in Fullerton, on a little town next to Anaheim. And he was very successful, and he was being groomed for politics, and he was president of this and that civic organization, and he was a tall, slender man. And he'd come flying into his office every morning in his three-piece suit, you know, and he looked so pretty. And, uh, and Johnny used to look like that too, you know, but he didn't anymore. And, uh, I'm not about doing a little nice thing when I think I have some ammunition, so I'd hold up this fellow to John that he could be like him, you know, then he might have something. But Johnny's been that man's sponsor for the last 22 years. <laughs> <laughs> Central office called him to make a call at one of the armor farms, and there he was. And John said, there is some justice after all. <laughs> and uh, John, John used to drive me to work in the morning after the kids went on the bus. And uh, then we tried to say a few civil words to each other, you know, nothing nothing serious, and uh, then by the time he picked me up in the afternoon, he came straight from the bar and he was drunk. We stopped at the liquor store on the way home, and it was in the parking lot there one afternoon, Johnny said to me, you see that guy over there with the brown paper bag? And I said, yeah. He said, he's an alcoholic. I said, how do you know that? Every day when I'm here, he's here. <laughs> well, I said we weren't fighting much anymore, and we weren't. Not very much was going on at our house. And, uh, but we had one more Donnybrook. Carolyn, our oldest girl, was 13, and it was time for open house at school. And Johnny always insisted on attending the children's function. You know, because he thought he probably couldn't be as bad as I said he was if he did. And of course it was a pain to have along, you know. Have you taken a drug to PTA lately? I mean, forget it. And he'd be weaving, you know, you could smell him, the whiskey, you know, all across the room. And I was always afraid he was going to put his hand on one of the teachers, you know, and tell some story or something. Here it was, and Johnny said, well, it's time to go to open house. And I said, oh, John, you look so tired. Why don't you stay home? And, of course, then he had to go, but you know, I didn't want him to go, so. But then Karen spoke up. And our children had not participated in our course at all. They never said anything to their dad. But Carolyn spoke up and said, Dad, I don't want you to come to my school. You're a drunk and you always embarrass me. And John just slapped you across the face. And I, I tell you, it, it broke it up. <laughs> I mean, that had never happened before. And, uh, and I, I know what it did to me. It brought me right back to that time when I could never keep my mouth shut with my dad. And, uh, and I thought about this thing for a few days. And I thought, this is it. This is my first teenager. And I have three more coming along. And I decided to have one more talk with John. And I said, you know, 
I'm not going to accept that the children are going to be slapped around. And either you have to go down and try that alcoholics anonymous or you you have to go away. And uh, I didn't know anything about Alamon. I certainly didn't know anything about don't make threats you don't intend to carry out. It seemed to me we just went wrong. But then one night Johnny came home and he said to me, let's go and talk in the living room. And he said, you know, I'm not drinking anymore. I said, you're not? No, he said, I have been going to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't think I have to drink again. And, you know, I, I didn't know what to say. Johnny tells that I said, your eyes look different, and that's certainly God's grace, because I knew what I thought. And he said he wasn't drinking anymore, not even in the garage, you know. I, <laughs> My main thing in life was that he should never be able to put anything over on me, you know. Well, here it was. Now we had sobriety in our house. And every afternoon when Johnny came to my office to take me off, he was sober. And uh, we never stopped anywhere. We went home. And uh, it was wonderful. But he was full of stories about the Alana Club in Anaheim. And then he began to talk about Charlie. Guess what this Charlie told me today? And this is what Charlie said, you see. And Charlie says this. And I said, well, for heaven's sake, bring him home. I wanted to meet him. I wanted to see what he had that I didn't have. I said some of those things too, you know. <laughs> and uh, so one night after the meeting, here they came. And here was Charlie, and he was a tall, nice-looking man. And, and he was sober, I could see that. And uh, I had to tell this, I can go jump free. Fast forward a moment. Uh, I, I thought that, that now it was really going to get tough on John. You know, there were going to be, the uh, now he had a sponsor that sounded, uh, you know, responsible to me. And uh, this man was going to really teach him about a few things that I already knew. But, uh, and I thought maybe there would be some written tests or something. That's how my mind works. And uh, when Charlie died two years ago, he was John sponsor all that time. And uh, John got another sponsor. And uh, he went to talk to him. And when he came home, I said, well, John, what did John Haley say? He's the sponsor. And Johnny said, there's going to be some written tests. <laughs> Anyway, every day after dinner, and sometimes he had dinner with us, Charlie would show up to take Johnny to a meeting. And uh, this went on for about a month, I think. I stayed in that pink cloud. But then I started thinking, it's in his show. I'm still stuck here at home with the kids, you know. And uh, I asked John, uh, you know, is it really necessary to go to a meeting every night? He said, I'll check. Yeah, it was. It was necessary. And of course, you know, that, that time of day, right after dinner in the household with a bunch of kids, it's nobody's trying to do the dishes. Nobody can find their homework. There's no shampoo. She wore a high sweater today. We even remember little John, who was six years old. He was a baby. 
And the Carolyn said, well, little John should do dishes too, you know, just because he's a boy, doesn't he? So she said, get out there, little John, let's start doing the dishes. And little John said, I've got cramps. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so after I had complained about being left alone at home all the time, you know, they began to invite me to come to open meetings, to a speaker meetings at the Alana Club. And I have to tell you, that Alana Club, I've seen a lot of Alana Clubs over the years, but that one... I haven't matched it yet. It was really downtown in a district I've never been in. And uh, there wasn't a chair in the place, but 35 old sofas with fleecy bedspreads on them. I can't even describe the smoke. Some of you old-timers know what the smoke was like. And, uh, and of course, as, as the years went by, the slosher John got, the more proper I got, you know. So here comes Miss Chris into this place. And you know, it was given to me, and it surely was a gift. I just loved that place. I had never any trouble coming in there. I just felt so safe and so full of hope in there. And I could see that these people had been heavy drinkers, and I could see they were sober, and I was so impressed with that. And uh, that's where I got to hear all the great AA speakers. You have them on tape out there, Norm Alfie and Chuck C. and... Clancy came, he was four years sober then, and uh, Alan McGinnis, and there was a beautiful AA lady, Maya Forbes of the nation, beautiful to look at, and beautifully dressed. She came sweeping in there on Sunday morning in a white cashmere coat, you know, and I, of course, right away, where can you put that coat, you know? Not on those sofas, surely, but she kept it on, and down for that. And Johnny got the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous right away. And I read it right away. Because I knew I could better help him with his program. And I loved it. You know, I still love the big book. And, uh, and I thought, oh, it's so plainly written. It's like, like an arrow into your heart, you know. And I was so, I thought it was so wonderful. And here was John, you know. And, and uh, by that time, Johnny asked me to quit my job and be home again. And I was glad to do that. I wanted to be there when I got kids got home. And John has always been fortunate to have part of his office at home, so he was there a lot. And Charlie didn't seem to have anywhere to go either, so he was there a lot. But, but I didn't care. They were going to work this beautiful spiritual program, you see. And uh, except I could never hear them talk about it. It seemed to me... They told a lot of funny stories and they laughed a lot. And they discussed Charlie's automobile. He had an old Austin Healy. And, uh, but then I figured it out. Charlie hadn't told Charlie what he had put me through. You see, Charlie didn't know. So I'll tell you what I did. On Sunday morning, I got in the car and I drove over to Charlie and Virginia's house and I told them everything. Everything, Palm Springs, the whole thing. And they didn't say very much. I remember they looked at their shoes a lot. <laughs> it was soon after that that Charlie began to talk about some women he knew. 
that met in the back room of that club. And that's how I came to Alamo. And uh, they said, you told me that uh, we work the same 12 steps that the alcoholics do. And they said, you don't talk about the alcoholic in the meeting. I had a little trouble with that. But, uh, so now I was in Alamo. And I must say, I've heard UAAs talk about how difficult it is to come in and start working these 12 steps after you hit bottom. But a lot of time is coming in perfect. It is hard. <laughs> what are you going to do when there's nothing wrong with you? You have nothing to work with. But I tried. <laughs> and uh, I even got a sponsor. And uh, I tell you, I was really fine in the meetings. Except it never lasted all the way home, you know. I had a lot of trouble letting go of the past. And uh, I can still remember, I, I began to hear things in the meeting, you know. And I could feel kind of a shift within me. And, uh, but I was afraid to try some of those things because I didn't want it to benefit him, you know. I, I was so worried that he might feel good if I did something different. Because I had sort of hope. And I didn't like what was going on in the AA meetings, really. All that laughter, for one thing. And uh, I had sort of thought that they would teach him a few things in there and point out a few things, you know. Maybe rough him up a little bit. You know? <laughs> But none of that. They carried on, you know. We'd come into that big AA room, and there they would be. Hello. Oh, John, you look wonderful. How long do you have? Oh, oh hi, Karen. Oh. And we have something in Alabama called the do's and the don'ts. I don't know. Do you read them up here, too? Maybe not. You have, uh, we have nine do's and ten don'ts. I'm not going to read them all. But a couple of the do's are learn the facts about alcoholism and they go to Alamo meetings often. And then the don'ts, some of them are, uh, don't try to dominate, scold, nag and complain. Don't lose your temper. Don't keep bringing up the past. Don't keep checking up on the alcoholic. And I thought, great, isn't this going to make it pushy for the alcoholic, you know? <laughs> and, you know, it took me a couple of years to figure out that if I could stop doing those things, I would be free, you see. But I couldn't see that then. And I used to call my sponsor, Myrna, what's her name? And I said, now, you want to hear this, Myrna, what he said to me last night? And when I said, uh, have you made the bed? Made the bed. Well, I went to made the bed, and then I called her again. I said, are you ready for this? You want to hear what he said to me? And she said, have you done the dishes? And I'm so grateful that she kept me on the ground because I had visions of myself becoming spiritual, like that beautiful AA lady, you know, and really sailing up. But 
that wasn't going to happen. Everything had to be right down to earth for me. And uh, I had one thing that I thought had worked somewhat for me during the drinking. And that was, I used to hold up to John how he was hurting the kids by never teaching them anything, never taking them anywhere. And I knew I could get to him with this because of his father dying when he was eight years old. And I'd watch him play with them or teach them things and shake and sweat, you know. And I thought, oh, serves him right. And, uh, but now he's doing the same thing. Of course, now I couldn't, I couldn't hold up the drinking any longer. And uh, I wanted to say, too, my, my basic, the bottom line for me was that I was so glad that he was sober. I, I, I don't take anything away from that. I was so glad that he was sober. But I hadn't counted on that he was going to be happy. It just burned me up, you know. And, and to have fun in here, I mean, really. So here it was. No, I was still doing this thing. You know, when you have a bunch of kids, they cry and cry. And then I said, yes, John, after all, you're an alcoholic. And all that drinking must have damaged him. And no, Johnny wouldn't defend himself. He'd just say, yes, Ken, I'm so sorry that I'm trying to do better. And, you know, I did that over and over again. And each time I felt smaller and smaller inside. And I talked to Myrna about it. I said, Myrna, this is what I'm doing. And uh, I somehow felt... I was losing him, you know. It, it was as if I knew that if he couldn't live peaceably with me, he would leave, but he wouldn't get up, he'd give up AA. And Murrah said to me, Karen, you're going to have to let go of the past. You have to forgive him. You can't keep just bringing this up again. Nobody can fix the past. You can't fix this, Johnny can't fix it. The only way you can get a better past is to have a better present. And she said, I think it's time for your inventory. It's time you take your fourth step. And she sort of stressed your fourth step. And, uh, and I was always willing. I read the fourth step in, in our album literature and the, in the big book, in the 12 and 12 AA book. And uh, my whole reaction to the fourth step was, what did I ever do? I stayed home and took care of the kids. And I told that to her, and that was my fifth step, you see. And there I was, you see. And uh, I had just done this thing again, put that knife in. And I came to the meeting. And I felt so alone and so isolated from everyone. And I thought, I don't even have a right to be in Al-Anon. They think I'm doing so well, but I'm not the same way at home as I am in the meeting. And I, I was in such despair, you know. And something happened in that meeting for me. I was, like I was all alone, and something came back to me that had happened five years before sobriety, and we were in our second year on the program. John had to go to San Diego on a job, and he asked me to come along, 
And for some reason, we took Katrina with us. Katrina, our youngest girl, was three years old. And we drove to San Diego. Well, I had some things, some accusations to make to John that morning. I overheard a little, and I had figured the rest of it out by myself. And I was really going to give it to him. And I tell you, I screamed, and I swore, and I cried in that car all the way to San Diego. I even tried to open the car door while Johnny was crying. And Johnny tried to calm me down, and little Katrina begged me to stop, and there was no stopping me. I was just insane with jealousy and rage. It was so clear to me. And we came to San Diego, and Johnny took care of his work. And we drove home, and I did the very same thing all the way home. I was absolutely crazy. And when we got back to the house, my mother was there with the other kids. And I hopped out of the car, and I said, Hi, how is everybody? And, you know, I had never once, that was seven years later, I had never once thought of those horrible hours. How scary it must have been for little Katrina. And how hopeless for John, where he was then, too. And then other things began to come back to me. That time I wish to go to Palm Springs and Johnny had started to drink. And I thought he shouldn't drive. But then a cool thought in the back of my head said, oh yes, here you go. And if something happens on the road, maybe that would scare him. You know, now I was the children's champion. I was the sane and sober one. But that's what I did. And another time, I had taken my two girls shopping on a Saturday morning, and we left the baby at home, and we went shopping, and we had lunch, and in the car going home, I thought, oh my God, I hope the baby is all right. And then I thought, well, if he isn't, and we got home, and Johnny was passed out in the lawn swing, and the baby was sitting on the steps of the pool playing. I was in my glory that afternoon. I blamed that whole thing on John. And you know, by that time, John was a daily drinker. He was a morning drinker. And on Saturday especially, he woke up early and started drinking and woke, uh, passed out and woke up in the afternoon. And I knew that. So there I was. And some of the things from home. And I finally understood I couldn't pass myself off as a victim any longer. This was my stuff. And Mona had said to me, you have to forgive John. Well, I knew, I knew John was forgiven. Whoever should forgive him had forgiven him because he was changing. He was a new man. But now I needed forgiveness myself. And that's what has to happen, I think. We have to finally see our own part in it. And then I told this to Mona, and at that time I had just met Elsie Chamberlain, and I told it to her. And she said, well, now you have to let go of that. Now you are at the sixth step. That's where you can begin to ask God to help you to change. And of course, this happened a long time ago. And... Uh, we have such a peaceful life, and we have been given so much during these 36 years. And all the children are grown, of course, 
she had a, the two girls were married, and the boy is getting married in September, thank goodness. I told John I want him to get married while he still can be trained, you know. <laughs> he didn't even smile. <laughs> I, I'm just going to tell you one thing, and then I'm going to sit down. I promise. Um, I talked about how, how powerful the Alamon program is. Because it's, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to see that you even need to change when nothing is very obvious, you know. It's obvious to other people, but not to you. I mean, you don't get in tickets. You, you don't get picked up for weaving and stuff like that. And uh, this happened to me in my first year on Alamon. One of my Alamon friends had to go to work, and she said, I want you to make this 12-step call. And I said, okay. And I went to, uh, to this house, and I knocked on the door, and this woman opened the door a little bit, and I said, I'm here from Alamon, and she let me in. All the grapes were drawn in the house, and uh, she spoke to me in whispers. And she was married to this very successful commercial builder. He was gone for the weekend. That's how come she had there to call Alamon. But she was so fearful. And, uh, and you know, nothing had happened to me yet. There was, had been no change within me. But I had sense enough to ask her if she wanted to go to an Alamon meeting. And we went that night. And she heard and said something in that meeting. And we began to go to Alamon meetings together. And of course, he had come back again. And he'd be out on that porch glaring at me every time I came to pick her up. And uh, we went. And I remember she enrolled in a business class at the night school. And she had a long green Buick automobile that she hadn't driven for several years. She was so fearful. And she had that shell stopped and started to drive again. And, uh, and of course, I had already learned in AA meetings that you can't promote this thing. You know, you can't sell it. Uh, but I threw that rule out. And I made John go and make a 12-step call on this guy. And, uh, and he told John, if you ever show your face here again, I'll kill you. <laughs> so that didn't work. <laughs> but, uh, and uh, so one night when I came to pick her up, this guy had really had it. He was true. He stood out there on the porch and he said, if you get in that car with that silly woman one more time, you needn't come back. I'll change all the locks. I'll close all the accounts. You'll be begging in the streets and on and on. He was foaming at the mouth. He was so mad. And I sat in my car and I thought, yeah, go back in with him. You know, this was a dumb idea from the beginning. And, uh, but she just stood there and he went on raving. And then when he drew his breath a moment, she said, uh, I'm sorry, but I had to go to my meeting. And she marched right past him and we drove off. Well, something had changed. Now he could see that she wasn't afraid of him. And, uh, so he said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll go to one of those stupid meetings, and then I don't want to hear this nonsense anymore, you know. So he said, thank you. And it was October, and it was time for the Southern California Convention, and it was held in Anaheim at the Convention Center. 
And um, Sunday morning, we, John and I took them there. And uh, we stood in that lobby, it's just like out here, you know, and on Sunday morning, you know, everybody's two feet off the floor from all the love and gratitude and, and buzzing, and, and, uh, and he stood there like he was made out of ice, but he didn't run. And we came into the meeting, and, and Chuck C. was speaking that morning. If you haven't heard him, meditate. And uh, ten minutes into Chuck's talk, we saw it happen to this guy. Oh. It was as if something fell off of him. Something I can't explain. And he reached and took his wife's hand. Took to his wife's hand, you know. I mean, you wouldn't have thought that in a million years. And uh, that was the beginning for him, of course. And uh, he died a few years ago. And he had 18 years of sobriety. Well, quite a few years ago. He had 18 years of sobriety. And those two people were, had so many people, you know. And this is what we, what we get to be around, you know. And of course, she, his wife had found her inner strength in those animal meetings and backed off, you know. Stop begging him, stop bringing up the drinking, went to see about doing something for herself. And that's what we want you to do, to get your own life. It doesn't mean that you have to throw the drunk away, God forbid. But I mean, <laughs> it's hard to throw away, too. <laughs> but you know, not just hover over them anymore. And they changed the climate in their house enough that he could see his way. I tell you, I am so grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous and to Alamon and to all of you. Thank you.